Christ Jesus, the dear brother and faithful servant in the Lord, will tell you everything so that you may also know how I am and what I am doing. I am sending him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage you. Peace to the brothers and sisters and faith, love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with an undying love. Amen. Thank you. you can have it now. <laughs> Well, good morning, church. God is good. And all the time, everyone here has perfect attendance at church in 2019. That's really cool. Good job, guys. Um, if you're visiting with us today, we want to let you know that you are an honored guest. And you have come to us at a kind of a unique time. Uh, the very first sermon, the very first Sunday in 2019, uh, where we are uh, we're beginning a, a new theme this year. Uh, recapturing... Momentum, and uh, as as Jeremy mentioned earlier, it's a 3D vision, right? Uh, we have a 3D vision. We want to div- discover our kingdom concept. We want to develop a way to make disciples, and we want to deepen our spiritual rhythms. And if we do this, I believe it will be able to approach 2020 with 2020. We'll be able to approach the next year with great clarity and with great vision. And uh, believe it or not, that has a lot to do with with this. I'm going to have to cue you up there, so be paying attention. Um, So it has a lot to do with uh, Paul's letter to the Ephesians. And and the reason is is really simple. Um, uh, Paul is sharing his letter to the Ephesians. Uh, to help this church develop their kingdom concept. Now, uh, most of you probably got one of these when you came in. If not, um, maybe Don, if you can pass out some of the ones that who uh, snuck by without you getting one of these in their hands. Uh, these are sermon notes, uh, and that is our first blank. Uh, Paul writes the letter to the Ephesians to uh, help them discover their first kingdom concept. That's the first slide. Um, and, and, and this is really connected to momentum, right? Paul writes to this church to help this young church uh, recapture its momentum. And he does it by helping them discover this kingdom concept. Now, I've used this term kingdom concept uh, a number of times. And I want to make sure that everyone's on the same page when we, when we use this. And so if you'll advance the slide to the next one. Um, a kingdom concept is simply this. A kingdom concept is how a church glorifies God and makes disciples, right? A kingdom concept is how a church glorifies God and makes disciples. And I believe that uh, this is something that this early church uh, desperately, desperately needs. Um, Because there's a lot of things stacked against them. We covered it in Bible class. We'll talk a little bit about it uh, in this morning's lesson as well. If you'll advance the slide, please. A couple weeks ago, I I started the bulletin, or I put in a bulletin, an article uh, about a man who's trying to inspire people uh, to take on a a new and broader view of themselves in the kingdom. As as an individual, um, it's a couple weeks ago. Um, He tells a story of a friend who was a, a person who would dive for exotic fish. And uh, apparently he would come across a number of different types of sharks. And apparently 
Um, sharks, if they're kept in captivity, will only grow to the size of the aquarium, right? They can be full grown, right? Fully matured and still only six to eight inches long. Um, and his thing was, um, if you put them in the wild and let them grow according to their DNA, they'll actually become much larger, up to eight feet. And the parallel he made was this, is that a lot of times uh, Christianity is filled with sort of six to eight inch Christians, <laughs> right? We, we, we kind of swim around in our puddles, and, uh, but if we could just somehow uh, get us into the bigger picture. In fact, he uses this phrase. The next slide, please. If you were to put them into a large arena, in a broader view of the whole creation, they might become great. Right? This is why Paul writes the Ephesian letter. This is how he recaptures momentum. He's trying to get these six to eight inch disciples that have been in Ephesus for a maximum of five years when he's writing from prison um, to the churches in Ephesus. They're six to eight inches and he knows if they're not careful, they'll succumb to their aquarium, to the things that constrain them. You say, well, Matt, what are those? Well, let's take a look at a couple of those. Uh, next slide, right? A consuming culture. Now, I don't mean a consumeristic culture, although that was part of it, no doubt, but a consuming culture. When Paul goes to Ephesus and establishes a church there, um, it, Ephesus has only been um, a Roman colony for about 100 or 200 years. But the city of Ephesus and the culture and the narrative has been there a 1,000 years. Now, our nation's only been here a couple hundred years, and we already have ways of being American that are deeply rooted in tradition, and we're only a couple hundred years old. Imagine how deeply rooted the traditions and the religion and the way of life is when you move into a culture that is a thousand years old. And, and it was inevitable that cultures would do so. Uh, Ephesus is strategically located. It's on the southeast tip of uh, what is Turkey today. Um, it's a port city with the Aegean on the west and fertile fields as far as the eye can see to the east. And it has dual uh, rivers. So basically, when you have rivers and an ocean in the city, you have industry with freeways, right? Uh, ways to move it and, and take it from here to there. And because of that, Ephesus became a huge trade center. Um, and also a place of great agriculture, a, great of great, a place of great significance. In the Roman Empire, it was number three or four in terms of significance as a city. And it was the dominant capital of Rome in Asia Minor. It had about 250 plus thousand people that lived there. That's not including the swelling that would take place through trade and through people coming in. This is a major city. And if it had not been someone... Um, from Ephesus, or uh, as we'll see later, the, uh, the, um, the goddess of, of Aramith, um, Artemis, uh, it would have been someone else because of just how geographically rich this place is. Uh, but alas, it was. And it was populated um, by those who worshipped Artemis. In fact, even though um, Ephesus changed hands over the years, even physical locations for that matter, um, a number of times in that thousand years, there's one narrative that stayed the same. And that is, this is a city that worshipped Artemis, the, the goddess of Artemis. Um, it was deeply superstitious. We talked about it in Bible class today, just how, how deeply superstitious it was. And, and some of it was not founded, but 
un- understandable. There's a great sense of demonic activity taking place in Ephesus if you read the book of Acts. Um, and it was also the center of, of sort of the dark arts. Um, so, uh, but it was dominated by this, this next temple. Uh, this is the picture of uh, one of the ancient world's seven world wonders, right? Um, this is four times the size of the Parthenon. Uh, it had six-story pillars, and it had uh, a numbers of prostitutes and eunuchs that would take care of this temple. Because Artemis was uh, a fertility goddess as well as a goddess of the hunt. Um, and, by the way, this is also the location, as I shared in Bible class, I think it's where the, uh, the Amazon women shot the arrow in the latest Wonder Woman movie. You know, it lands here, and there's this big fire that takes place. And there's a reason for that, because the mythos behind the Amazon women actually comes from the cult of Artemis. And so this is a very significant, dominant place uh, in Ephesus. It's much like the steel mill is for Lorraine. You can't enter Lorraine without recognizing there's a massive steel mill there. And you can't enter Ephesus without recognizing the cult of Artemis. It is that significant. And, and, and the import is this. That means that these early Christians in Ephesus had to begin their walk with Christ in a culture that had been there long before them and a culture that they were coming from. The equivalent would be someone who's recovering from alcohol, alcoholism, a recovering, alcohol, uh, a recovering alcoholic living in a bar. Think about that a second. Like all of the people who are in the church, at least the majority of them, who are in the church at Ephesus, aside from the Jews, especially the Greeks, um, they would have been recovering idolaters, right? And, and they live as recovering alcoholics in a bar. Their culture so easily could have consumed them. Uh, so easily would have been the draw back into the way things have always been, the way things are. Right? So this is one of the reasons that they could have stayed uh, um, baby shark. Right? <laughs> they could have stayed baby shark because of these constraints of a consuming culture. But there's other things as well. It was also the way that they began. Uh, the, next, uh, the next slide, uh, actually I'll have to punch it like six times. Um, there's an extraordinary beginning of this church found in Acts chapter 19. Um, their beginning was, was just remarkable. Um, it starts with a sort of mini Pentecost, as we see in Acts, uh, 1, or Acts 19, 1 and 6. There's 12 disciples. They receive the Holy Spirit. They're baptized. Uh, next, uh, next button, please. Uh, they preach the kingdom of God uh, in verse, uh, chapter, or chapter 19, verse 11. Um, if you hit it again, uh, go ahead and hit it four more times. Keep going. There you go. Uh, and there were extraordinary miracles that took place. Right? Extraordinary miracles. And those aren't my words. Those are Luke's. Now think about that. Now, for Matt, an extraordinary miracle is the fact that I can pay $1.72 for gas, right? That's extraordinary to me. For Luke, who's been around these apostles, who've seen the Holy Spirit in action, the power of God displayed, for him to say there were extraordinary things taking place here would have meant extremely extraordinary things taking place. Um, this is Paul. This is Luke's words. They were extraordinary. Even handkerchiefs touched by Paul were brought home to people and they were healed. 
Uh, there's, a, there's this great little story, I think it's hilarious, the, uh, the story of the sons of Sceva, uh, an itinerant Jewish exorcist, right? Uh, who's going around trying to cast out demons the way that Paul does. Why? Because Paul is doing some amazing, powerful things. So powerful was the gospel's demonstration here that a people who had relied on the dark arts and the, and the power of Artemis to rule their lives came at one point and they had this giant book burning, right? It's all these scrolls and all the paraphernalia of the old ways and the magic and the things that they had practiced and idolatry had done before. And they, they give it all up because they know the gospel, Yahweh is powerful. Yahweh is God. And they start a riot. At the end of chapter 19, there's this great story where uh, Demetrius, the uh, silversmith, says, listen, our steel mill in Ephesus, well, it's starting to be affected by the gospel. This, the temple of Artemis, our, our goddess, is being affected because Paul's proclaiming so powerfully that, that he's telling everyone there are no gods made by human hands. And he's actually affecting the economy because they're no longer buying their, well, their idols and their trinkets and their paraphernalia for the practice of the worship arts. And as a result, the story tells us that the silversmith grabs a group of people, runs into a, a theater that would... would would seat about 24,000 people. And for about two hours, they have this pep rally in the name of Artemis. And it's, it's a powerful thing. So what this means, number one, is not only is this early church in a culture that could easily consume them because of, of, of where they've come uh, from in their own redemptive story, it also sit in a place um, that is out to get them, right? They not only live in the bar, but the bar's trying to kill them. Right? Think about that. They're, they're a group of believers, they're, they're recovering alcoholics that live in the bar, and the people at the bar are trying to get them out, are trying to kill them. There's a lot stacked against this early church. There's a reason they are contained, and there's a reason uh, for fear of containment, because all of these pressures. And then, of course, the next slide, please. Their leadership is in prison. Um, that's one of your blanks, by the way, this morning. The church in Ephesus faced a consuming culture, and... Uh, <coughs> Let's see, an extraordinary beginning and an imprisoned leadership. Now, you can imagine how this would feel to them, right? Paul's the one who brings the gospel to them. The one who says that God is, uh, that Christ is king, that, that Yahweh is in charge, and that he's the one that rules the world. And yet Paul is the one who ends up in a Roman prison. You can imagine how unsettling that might be. The guy that started the church is now behind bars. It would be very easy for that to take place. Um, in, in, a, in a similar way in our culture, when that happens in our culture, uh, movements that have been created by people who are uh, found to be in scandal end up fizzling out. It could happen in the first century as well. And so the point is, is this, is that this early group of believers, Paul's worried about them. He doesn't want them to remain little six to eight inch sharks. He wants to make sure and bring them out into the broader view of God's redemptive purposes. And even though, yes, he prays, hey, pray for me. And when you read Ephesians, it is very clear that Ephesians is more about Paul's prayer that they don't find themselves in captivity. Yes, Paul's in prison. But he's more concerned that they will end up 
and the prison of their own confinement in fear and insecurity based on these pressures we just talked about. And so he shares with them, next slide please, a kingdom concept. This is how he brings the little sharks into the broader view of God's redemptive story. He, he reminds them in the very first chapter of God's purposes. Number two, he, he helps them and prays that they would, they would capture the vision of what that purpose looks like for the church at Ephesus in Ephesus. And he provides them a pathway to discipleship. And that, that's your final blank there this morning. Paul lays out a kingdom concept by praising God's purpose, by praying that the church would capture vision, and providing a path for discipleship. That's, by the way, how the book or the letter of Ephesians breaks down. You can quite easily separate it into two uh, main concepts, right? There's uh, what some would say is orthodoxy, right? Chapters 1 through 3 is all belief and doctrine and this lofty thought. And then the final three chapters are really practical, orthopraxy, right living. So right, right believing, right thinking leads to right living. Uh, or you might say um, how you glorify God and make disciples. And as we see here, it's about praising God's purpose, praying for vision, and establishing a path, a way, an understanding of what it means to grow up in Christ and not stay the six to eight inch shark, right? Um, we don't want baby shark. We want, we want papa shark. For those parents, you guys know what I'm talking about. Um, this is a big deal. It's a big deal. This is how Paul helps this church discover its kingdom concept. By the way, this is how we're going to discover our kingdom concept. The reason we're going through uh, the Ephesian letter isn't just to see them do it and just simply duplicate it. We're going to see them do it and then do it for ourselves. You see, the kingdom concept, how a church glorifies God and makes disciples, is not a one-size-fits-all thing, regardless of what we might have thought or been taught. It is very unique. What Paul asked the church in Ephesus to do is not what he asked all churches to do. And it's very important that we discover what God's purpose is, what Amherst is supposed to be in Amherst, and how to make disciples ourselves. So what better way to do that is to see how Paul does it for Ephesus and then take our turn. At the end of this series, uh, in about four weeks, we're going to create a, a kingdom concept committee who will go through a very intentional process to sort of understand what these pieces look like for this church and for us here. I'm very excited about it. I think it's going to be a, a wonderful blessing for us uh, to go through a process like this. And as we, can, uh, we, we turn to conclude here this morning, I want to, I want to sort of just talk about a couple caveats um, that come up when we look at, um, well, as we look at, Looking and preaching through a text. Um, sometimes I think it's important to, to say that uh, it's okay to go through a book of the Bible in four lessons. Um, it, it's fascinating because I have a lot of friends who are ministers and pastors from other denominations, and they will tell me, Yeah, we spent all of last year in Ephesus or in Ephesians. And I'm like, Wow, you know, that's impressive. You know, at one level, I'm very, very much impressed because they go line by line and word by word. And what they do is they take every concept and they string it out all over Scripture. How, how does Ephesians sort of 
connect to every single part of the Bible and doctrine you can think of. And so at the end of the story, you have this giant cobweb of doctrines and ideas, and you have no idea what Ephesians actually means. Um, here, here's something to keep in mind. If you think that moving through Ephesians in four weeks is, is maybe a little fast, consider this. These epistles were designed to be heard once. They were oral presentations to a church. It was years before they get compiled and they start looking at them and, and going back to them for uh, the way that we might do it. Their first presentation, someone would come up and read a letter. And, and, and Paul expected his letter to be able to affect the church in a single reading. So going through it in, in, four, in four sermons, I think, will be more than adequate for us. In fact, Paul would be... Paul would be shocked that we took a whole year. <laughs> he really wouldn't. I guarantee you, Paul's going to be like, I never meant that. What are you doing? That has nothing to do with what I'm talking about. Um, so it's very appropriate for us to go and to move through in a, a letter like Ephesians in one year. Another challenge to uh, an approach like this is also this idea that we're going to look at us corporately and sort of skip over us individually. Uh, I don't want to do that either this year. I want to make sure that as we look at the um, kingdom concept as Paul would, uh, would roll it out, um, that we're also taking a look at you and at me as well. Because what Paul does on a corporate stage uh, has, has a lot of meaning for us personally as well. Um, that's why there's a pumpkin on the screen. Um, that's why there's an article in the bulletin about a pumpkin behind a glass. It was a, a little story I read about a farmer who goes into a field and uh, it's at the point in the pumpkins where they look like little acorns. And he finds this glass and he sticks it over the pumpkin. And when he comes back to harvest it, all the other pumpkins are huge and weird looking and oblonged and everything. And have grown according to their design uh, in the wide open space of the field. But this one little pumpkin that had the glass over it, well guess what happened to it? It's only grown to the, uh, to the size of its constraints. Um, and, I, and I think sometimes, uh, I think that's sometimes us. It's not just Ephesus. It's not just the church at, uh, at Ephesus who is tempted to be constrained by exterior factors that kind of keep us stuck in ways of thinking, in ways of, of behaving. Um, and so in Ephesians, when Paul prays uh, at the end, I think if you look at, at his prayer, we can sort of, uh, we can sort of reverse engineer a good lesson for us to get out of those ways that confine us. And, and if you look at his prayer, he does a number of things. Number one, he says, I recognize my constraints. Paul knows he's in prison. Let me tell you, church, there are people who don't know their constraints. There are people who live in denial and believe they don't live in the jar, but do. And the very first step out of those constraints is to recognize, you know what? I should be way more than what I am now. My life should be totally different. I have been dominated by X, Y, and Z. These are constraints. I have been shaped by other things than the gospel in Jesus Christ. And the first step is always to recognize our constraints. The second thing is to do what Paul did, which is understand that there is a should Paul asks, he says, I know I'm in prison, so pray that I speak as I should. You see, for Paul, there's an ought. There's a should. There's not only a, a recognition of, of, of constraint, there's also a recognition of, 
what he should be doing and how he should be living. Uh, and that's also very, very important in our culture today. Because our, our culture's message is you live however you want to live. You be however you want to be. You do whatever you want to do. You be you. To thine own self be true. Well, guess what? The Christian message says there is a you that you're going for. And it looks like a son and daughter of God. Right? And so there is an ought. Understand there's a constraint. Number two, discover the should. Three, pray for strength. This is what Paul is asking for because he knows. Remember the phrase in there? I just love this phrase. He says that the right words would be given to you. You know, for Paul, think about that. He's a scholar. He's got, a, he's got an amazing memory. He's got a great uh, PhD in theology. And yet this man in prison isn't like, hey, let me rely on my training. He says, just give me the right words to say. Why? Because he knows it's God who's in charge of the change. He knows it's prayer that allows us to find that power. The next thing he does is enlist others. This is why he sends this, 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 this epistle. He goes, I'm, I'm sending this so you guys will pray for me. And I'm also sending uh, Tychicus to you so that he can encourage you and let you know how I'm doing. Right? He enlists others. Christianity uh, has always been a personal relationship, but it's never been a private endeavor. It is personal, but it isn't private. There's strength in numbers, strength in community, transformation, getting out of those constraints. Sometimes, sometimes you can't see the constraints and other people can other people can say, hey, you know, you got a blind spot there. You struggle with anger. You don't even know it. Or you struggle with lust, and you're not even paying attention to that. Or you're struggling with impatience, and, and no one's got the gall to tell you about it. <laughs> right? But we need other people in our world speaking to us. We need a list to help of others. And finally, do something. I should have said, do anything. <laughs> right? Because when you get in a place where you're confined and you're in this prison, sometimes you just can't do anything. And that's really all you need to do is do something. Think about it here for a second. The only thing, what, what, are the, what is the list of things that Paul could do in prison? Push-ups. Maybe, you know. Um, he sang on occasion. But, but what can this missionary do? He wrote a letter. And you want to think about the spiritual discipline of writing letters. And yet this letter goes on to shape the church and the kingdom of God for 2,000 years plus. All because of a letter he wrote. Because there was nothing else for him to do. There's nothing else he could do. How does, he, how does he help create momentum in a church that he had, he's been apart from for about five years who left him in a consuming culture, a, a bar that, that wants to kill them? How, how do you, you don't want to talk about feeling powerless. I feel powerless when I can't reach Melissa because her phone has died, right? I, can you imagine feeling powerless to help this group of believers miles away? And you left them, there was a riot, and you're trying to do something. So I'd encourage you. Be thoughtful. What are the things that confine you? What is your aquarium? Are you a full-grown six-inch Christian? Or do you live in to God's intentional kingdom purposes? 
What is it? Is it, is it? is it relationships? Is it the way you steward your life, your money, your relationships, your whatever? What is it? What is, what is it that's keeping you there? Find out what it is. Enlist other people. Pray. And above all else, do something. Do anything. Even if it just means writing a letter. Amen? Right, Paul's going to create momentum by, by helping this church discover a kingdom concept. He's going to praise God for his purpose. He's going to pray that they get the vision. And he's going to discover a pathway of discipleship. This week, your homework, your mission, if you choose to accept it, um, is read Ephesians. Just read it. It takes 20 minutes if you're slow. Read it. Just read it. And we'll come back and we'll discover how it is that this kingdom concept came to life in Ephesus. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much for this day. God, I'm excited about 2019. I'm excited about what you might do here, God. We need uh, to recapture momentum. We need to discover our kingdom concept as a church. So God, as we look at Ephesus, as we look at this letter that Paul has written, help us to discern what we need to do in our place. God, because we, we can readily recognize that we are in a place that if we're not careful, will consume us. And that we're in a place that while there are plenty of freedoms, there are also things that push back against us here. And that we need, a, uh, we need a place and an understanding of, of, of your lead, leadership and, and lordship in our life. God, help us to, to be mindful of these things. And God, help us in, in a personal level not to allow ourselves to be placed in, well, be placed in the aquarium. There's so many constraints in our lives, God. Help us confess them, address them, add people to the story, and do something about it. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you need the